Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Okay, Eric Bilstadt, you are, you, Marquette is not your alma mater. No. My, I went to law school there, of course, so I'm a big basketball fan, but your reaction to the news that uh, it's going to be Shaka Smart from Texas? See, I remember the VCU days, right. which he had a couple of successful seasons. Right. So it would be exciting from that avenue, but I, I, I don't know. I think it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Well, my word was underwhelmed. I, I'm, I know. Well, well <laughs> okay. here's the. I mean, Marquette. Before they hired Wojciechowski, they took a long look at him because you're you're right. He he came to prominence as this really hot young coach at, at VCU 2011 mm-hmm. yep. when um you know VCU he took him to the uh, he, he took him to the NCAA tournament and they made the Final Four you yep. know a series of upsets they were an 11th seed and he was kind of like the the hot coach at the time and Marquette took a long look at him and then ultimately decided to hire Wojciechowski smart ended up in in Texas and if you read the Texas stuff he he was on his way out he had he he had had two years left on his contract but his welcome had worn thin um interestingly and and I hate to be a downer on this but he's won as many NCAA tournament (laughs) games as Wojciechowski did which means none with with Texas Texas, which means none you know Mm -hmm. and this year they were the now this was a weird year I I will concede this was a weird year for college basketball they were number three seed got bounced by Abilene Christian College or something like that in the first round Um, they've had I mean they've had some success they've done well in like the Big 12 and all but his his overall record um his overall record in Big 12 play, 52-56. So my question, and I asked this earlier, I asked this last week, and I mean this with all due respect to Marquette. I, you know, I root for Marquette. I want him to succeed. But is that a destination? Is it a destination for a coach? And It's been a long time since Al McGuire was there. Right, yeah. 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 Dwayne Wade and Green had that great run. They're in the Big East. I get it. But is it a destination anymore? A name like this, I feel like, can bring some energy to the program. Okay. <laughs> so you don't know? Well, I'm well just I mean, I, mean I, guess I, I don't, I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. It, I mean, I think a lot of us, and I'm guilty of this as well, I think a lot of Marquette basketball fans don't realize it's not 1977 anymore. Right, I mean, right. I think there there's a lot of us that view the program through the Al McGuire lens and, and that sort of right. stuff. And it's been 40 years. It, it's, it's, it's been 40 years. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and now the thing about Marquette is, the Marquette head coach is, I don't, it's not the highest paid coaching position in the country, but it's in the top 10. Okay. Marquette spends a lot of money and the facilities for the basketball program are top notch. Mm-hmm. I mean, Marquette mm-hmm. pours, Marquette pours a ton of resources in there and the coaches are always extremely, you know, well paid. And, and what the, the people at Marquette have been doing is they've been trying, they, it's, it's, if the program has failed, um, it's not for, and I mean, candidly, the program has been a failure for the last seven years. Sure, I mean, let, right. let's 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 face it. And and you know, Buzz Williams, who was the coach before Wojciechowski, Williams had some degree of success, but he didn't do it the Marquette way. Williams, w- he went out and he brought in a bunch of junior college players, a lot of whom 
had problems. Mm-hmm. And and again, I'm not knocking junior college players, but a lot of times there's a reason why they don't start in Division you know right, one right. schools. And so you you had problems. And I think the Warcat administration said, look, we we want somebody. We, we want to move in a different direction, and we want somebody who's going to graduate players and things like that. And we, we don't be, want to be worried about stories about a bunch of the players mm-hmm. in some strip joint or, oh, yeah. or whatever. And, and Wojo brought that. But at the same time, they also want people who are going to be able to win. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, for whatever reason, he, he didn't bring that. So, I mean, I guess I, you know, you, you want to be optimistic about it. I, I'm glad they didn't go with. You know, a couple of names that were being tossed around were these guys that were in there, like the, what is it, Belkin, a guy who's like 68 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. I think yep. you want to find somebody that's going to feel comfortable to program and, and build it and not either be retiring in a couple of years or be bailing. And so I, you know, I, I think that's good. This is the first uh, black coach that they've had there. I think that's a head coach. And I, I think that's probably a good thing as well. But um, I, I don't know. I, it's It's not like... If if they were looking for this, oh my gosh, this is this this great hire, and you know, stop the presses. That you know, th- that that's not it. But well, hopefully, hopefully, a year from now, they're in the Sweet Sixteen, and you're buzzing. And oh, absolutely. Well, and the other thing is, and, and this is this is the challenge that all these coaches have right now. The NCAA, um, for example, if you're if you're a recruit, and Marquette has a couple good players who recruited, and the coach leaves, you you can. You can go somewhere else, you know, with no penalty. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm being told the NCAA is going to vote on this next week. But because of COVID and, and all these other things, that normally if you transfer, you have to sit out a year, you right? Know, right. You know, so you lose, you don't lose a year of eligibility, but you, you got to sit out year a year, right? Which is a tough thing. My understanding is that the NCAA is poised to to change that rule at least for next year. So the problem you have with a new coach coming in is you, you know, what, what about the players? Marquette has a really good nucleus of players. They got three players that I think have the potential to be in the NBA somewhere down the line. And the, but the question is, are they going to bail on the program? So that's the that's why they had to get a coach in quickly. I mean, some mm-hmm. some people are saying, well, why why didn't they wait another couple weeks and see you know how this NCAA thing plays out and see if you make a run at the guy from Loyola mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Porter Moser. But the longer you wait, you, you need somebody in place that can immediately reach out, especially to the really good players, and try to convince them that hey. You know, you want to play for me, and I want you to play for uh, for Marquette still. And the name recognition that helps a little bit with that. I mean, people know who this guy is. He's not well, just right. some nobody, right? And he's coming, right? And he's he's also, I mean, he's coming from the the Big Twelve, and he he did have, I mean, he had a couple up up and down years. Had a couple of real successful years. What I think what soured him in Texas this year is there were really high expectations because he had this big recruiting class, and you know, again, they were number three seed, and they get they get blown yeah, out. Yeah. So it's that. But but this was a weird year. But in any event. Hope hope it all works out. Um, but the new head coach at Marquette. We'll see you at Pfizer Forum next year. I thought, you know, one of the names that was kind of thrown around that I actually thought would be good, but I, it would have driven Marquette fans crazy, Tom Green. Bring him back, Tom Green. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I mean, I, he's not busy at the moment, I don't think. Well, he's at Georgia. Oh, is he, he's, he's at, working? Right, okay. he's, he's at Georgia, you know, but everybody... He's still not busy at the moment. Nobody... Right, nobody <laughs> 
you, you know, every nobody forgave him for for leaving Marquette to go to Indiana, except me, because I, I mean I I got it. The guy was a Big Ten guy. He came up through Michigan right. State, and, and it's Indiana, and it was Indiana, right? I mean, so I everybody just to your point. I mean, Marquette fans, you know. With, with the glory days and stuff, everybody and Crean, they had great success with Crean. Crean's the one that recruited mm-hmm. Dwayne Wade yeah. and things like that. Turned the program around, right? He absolutely did, and I mean, it left a bad. His departure left a bad taste in people's mouths, and and maybe that could have handled been handled a little bit better. But I always thought Tom Crean was a good coach and a good guy. So yeah. I and I was kind of hoping they made a run for Crean, but that would have that would have driven Marquette fans <laughs> just absolutely <laughs> bat crap crazy. Okay. Enough of the sports. I'm sure down the road at our down the dial at our colleagues at ESPN they're talking about this. When we come back, it is one of the most staggeringly stupid decisions that the Milwaukee County Board has made well in a while. And believe me, I understand the significance of what I just said. More Jeff Wagner right after this. Now about your house. Eric Brown is the president of Siding Unlimited, your contractor for new windows, roofing, siding, decks, and a whole lot more. He knows about your house. So what do you know, Eric? Window condensation is an epidemic. Okay, well maybe it isn't a widespread disease, but it is widespread. And we always get questions about why my windows have all this water on the glass. The reality is that window condensation is natural and a simple science. When the outside temperatures drop, your window's glass will get cooler. The moisture in the air inside your home condenses along the coolest edge of the window, causing water drops. This goes away when the surface of the window warms or when there's air movement inside the home that won't allow the moisture to condense. Will new windows eliminate window condensation? Nobody can sell you a window that is guaranteed to eliminate window condensation because we can't control how cold it gets outside. And controlling the moisture level in your home can be tricky. However, you can control the moisture level in your home, and we can sell you windows that will put up a great fight. New windows that are made for Wisconsin's climate have Energy Star ratings and have upgraded glass, seals, and frames that will help reduce the chance that moisture will collect on the glass. Our windows, installed the right way, will put up a great fight so if condensation were to occur, it would happen at the coldest temperatures. Although nobody can sell you a window that will guarantee eliminating window condensation, Siding Unlimited will install a window that will greatly reduce the chances of it occurring as well as reduce your energy bills and return comfort to your home in the process. Eric and his crews at Siding Unlimited are your go-to contractor here for replacement windows and roofing decks and, of course, siding. Take the next step. Check them out at SidingUnlimited.com. Siding Unlimited. Siding and a whole lot more. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. All right, let us get started. Milwaukee County has their, you might be familiar with it, they've got their, their sports facility um, that's uh, their sports complex down in, in Franklin. And they they use it for a number of things. The, the golf show has been there. For, I remember being at the golf show for years and years. There, they, they, they've had that there. It's one of the ways they have to to raise revenue. 
And so what happens is sometimes it's used for sports-related facilities. A lot of times it's used for, for various trade shows and stuff. And it brings a bunch of money into Milwaukee County. Money which, by the way, the last time I checked, Milwaukee County desperately needs. So here here is the deal. There is an ordinance in Milwaukee County that says dangerous weapons are not allowed in county buildings. Okay, you know they they don't want you carrying guns into the courthouse. They don't want you carrying guns into the state office building. Oh, into the the county office building. Okay, you you understand that 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 makes sense. All right, they've got that ordinance. Well, the sports complex is a county building technically, right? It's under the jurisdiction. So here's here's the deal. Historically, now last year I think was an exception, but historically there have been very very popular gun shows that have been staged in the sports complex. And the people that, that stage these, these gun shows, they, they spend, they pay a lot of money to the county to rent the facilities for like Friday and Saturday and Sunday, right? So, and have, I don't know if you've ever been to a gun show, but what you have is you have a number of firearm dealers and collectors that come and it attracts a lot of people. And it, it's, it's a revenue generator on all these different levels. So this has been going on for years and years. Well, somebody noticed a while back that, hey, hey wait a second, we've got this ordinance that prohibits um, dangerous weapons in county buildings. And the sports complex is a county building, so why why are we allowing gun shows? I mean, isn't this going to be terrible? So a couple uh, members of the county board introduced a resolution which would have exempted gun shows from this particular ordinance. So in other words, you could have continued having them there. And the matter was the subject of debate earlier this week, and after apparently a heated debate, the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors, these are the same, this is the same entity that gave us the Milwaukee County pension scandal two decades ago. They, by a vote of 13 to 3, shot down exceptions and said, look, here, here's the deal. No more gun shows in county-owned buildings. All right. Now, again, this this is this ordinance was created in November of 2011, and gun shows continued, from, I think, twice a year up until last year, and it never caused a problem. There was no issues, generated a ton of revenue for the county, but now you've got 13 members of the county board who are apparently completely and totally freaked out over the idea that, oh my gosh, you would, you would have a, a gun show. You would have a gun show in a county building. And don't you realize that we had, you know, there was a mass shooting that occurred in Colorado this week and the one that occurred in Georgia the next week. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, here, here's the deal. The gun shows have been going on for years and years and years. There has been no documented problem at all with the gun shows. I don't think there's even any evidence that suggests that somebody who purchased a firearm at one of those gun shows then turned and used it to commit a crime. I'm not saying it never happened, but there's no evidence that I'm aware of that suggests that. All right, is there any reason in God's green earth for Milwaukee County to stop these reputable firearms organizers from putting on a gun show? My answer would be no. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 
this to me. They'd rather raise your taxes than figure out a different way to generate revenue. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's crazy to me that they're not allowing these gun shows. What do you think? Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Here's a text. Jeff, I think everything we can do to distance ourselves and decrease the celebration engagement with guns, firearms is good. Stuff like this makes my head explode. Because here's the deal. It's not like you're not going to have gun shows. All, all the people in the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors are doing is saying, all right, by, by not allowing the sports complex, which will be vacant, by not allowing them to have the gun show, we're not going to give the revenue to Milwaukee County, which means that the burden on the taxpayers is going to be greater. And it's not like there's not going to be a gun show. It just means that the organizers are going to pri- find a private venue uh, to have the gun show or alternatively, you know, move it out to Waukesha or wherever. It's not like you're making gun shows go away, Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors. All you are doing is depriving your taxpayers of the ability to generate some revenue and therefore, you know, provide money. It's not like the gun shows are going to go away. Let's talk to Chris in Cedarburg. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you? I am well, thank you. What do you think? Um, I think I agree with you completely. I just think that, you know, the people who are gun enthusiasts or hunters or collectors, they will follow this wherever, wherever the shows are. So you are jipping, you know, um, the revenue out yeah. of this area. Yeah, the, the gun show is still going to occur. They, right, the gun show right, is still going to occur, right. And, and people are never going to change their hobbies. So they'll go to Indiana, Kentucky, Wisconsin, wherever, wherever right. they need to go. To, to go to these shows. So, you know, and, and there are responsible gun owners out there who hunt and collect and that type of thing and who are enthusiasts. And, of course, you get some whack jobs and stuff. But those are a lot of people who still kind of go underground and they have their own sources for guns also. So, right. No, you're you know, exactly right. No, thanks for calling. You, 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 are, you are exactly right. Look, I... I you know, they, they talk a lot about, well, we need to close the gun show loophole and background checks and stuff like that. That's fine. But but there, there's not any sort of verifiable evidence that shows a significant amount of crime. A significant amount is generated from sales of guns at gun shows. But regardless, I mean, you know, you, you can argue, hey, we, we need to do this or that or the other thing. But the gun shows are going to occur. This is this classic example of this kind of virtue signaling where you have a bunch of hoity-toity members of the uh, Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors who decides, well, <clears throat> we, we just don't like guns. And by the way, you know, they've been having these gun. This ordinance went into effect in 2011. Nobody enforced this. They've been having gun shows a couple times a year at the Franklin Sports Complex. No problems at all. And now now it becomes an issue. I mean, for goodness sakes, um, Jeff, uh, there are so many government owned buildings and property that could be used as income streams. But the liberals that run these facilities don't have the mentality to realize that they could save taxpayers money by actually making money with these properties. Jeff, must be nice if you can throw good money away. Yeah. Jeff, bring the gun show to Fond du Lac County. We can use the revenue. Jeff, I guess the county doesn't need money. Anyway, they have their own free gun show on a city street at any given weekend. Ouch. Well, there's an element of that. Jeff, this is just like the Ted Cruz mask issue yesterday. It's another attempt to make us feel better, but it does nothing to actually address 
anything. Here's a text. Better late than never, Milwaukee County. Glad you finally woke up. Woke up to what? I mean, again, this is the classic example of virtue signaling, this idea that, well, you know, we, we don't like guns, and we, we want to make a statement against mass shootings, so how dare we allow firearm collectors to gather on county property? All you do is drive those firearm collectors either out of Milwaukee County or drive them to a private venue in Milwaukee County, and you screw over the taxpayers. But, of course, the Milwaukee County Board has been all about screwing over the taxpayers of Milwaukee County for decades, and nothing, nothing is going to change about um, that, and that is the unfortunate situation. Um, Jeff, if Milwaukee County wants to play this way, I hope they should take the show out to Waukesha. I know they already have one, but if Milwaukee doesn't want it, I'm sure Waukesha will take the money. I'm also sure there's a lot of private venues in Milwaukee County that would be delighted to do this. Jeff, uh, this is just absolutely crazy. Yeah, it is. Jeff, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If they want to ban all dangerous weapons in buildings, well, baseball bats and dangerous weapons, so we can't have brewer sports. Well, no, look, I understand. I don't have any problem with an ordinance that says you, you can't bring guns into the safety building. All right, I understand the purpose behind that. It makes sense. But saying we're going to turn down the money for a gun show that's been in existence forever and has never caused any problems at all, it's absolutely dumb. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by Great Midwest Bank. And by the way, this is the last week. I think we've been doing it for the past nine weeks. Thank you to all the different sponsors and thank you to our presenting sponsor, Great Midwest Bank. We'll see everybody back in the fall. Anyways, uh, this week we've been featuring our friends at Miller Mobility for in and around home safety solutions. Get in touch with Miller Mobility today, 262-549-4900 or check them out at MillerMobility.com. All right, there, every, every once in a while, there, there's these stories that come along. If you wonder why newspapers are failing, if you wonder why, well, I mean, lately, especially since Donald Trump has left the, the stage, if you wonder why, like, TV news and the ratings are sort of crumbling, it, it's it's because for, for the longest time, n- newspapers, at least over the last couple of years, and stations like CNN, they, they tried to prop themselves up by, by playing to the anti-Trump crowd. They, they knew that President Trump was a very, very divisive figure and that as, as much as some people loved him, there were other people that just absolutely hated him and they couldn't get enough of the, the Trump hatred. And, and so that's why, and I've said this before, for example, in the New York Times, the New York Times became the, the paper of, of record as being the anti-Trump paper. And so they, they wrote the stories with the anti-Trump spin. And there was an anti-Trump spin. And they, they did it because they knew that they would attract subscribers who wanted that anti-Trump stuff. That was the message that they had. Not unlike Fox News was pro-Trump. Not unlike NS, MSNBC and CNN were, were anti-Trump. But with Trump gone... All right, you don't you don't have Trump to kick around anymore, and what we're seeing is that the numbers are just dropping off the cliff. CNN lost like forty five percent of its audience. So what, what's happening now is you have the, these newspapers and these TV outlets that are are straggling and struggling to try to recreate that. It's like okay, how can we keep the anti Trump fervor up? And so it, it's almost like you're, you're taking the, these stories, which are are self evident. 
and really shouldn't be stories. And you're trying to figure out, okay, how can we turn this into something that we can continue to hold that anti-Trump audience, even though Trump's been gone since since January? And USA Today has one of these classic examples of this. Here's the headline. Many accused in the Capitol attack placed their campaign cash on Trump and Republicans. Capitol rioters made no secret of their support for Donald Trump. They donned his signature red caps and wore clothes emblazoned with his name as they disrupted Congress on January 6th. According to this is this is see, this is the story now. According to campaign finance records, many of the same people charged in the Capitol riot sent their own money to Trump's reelection campaign. Even after his loss in November, they threw their cash behind his efforts to challenge the election as he touted the lie that it has been stolen. That's the USA Today writer, Rachel Axon. A USA Today analysis of FEC, that's the Federal Elections Commission records from 2019 and 2020, reveals that at least 75 of the 307 people charged in connection with the riot through March 18th made political donations. More than 98% of their cut of their contributions went to Republican candidates and committees, and nearly 87% of them donated to Trump. Now, let's stop here for a second. This is, this, and the story goes on, and it goes on. You print it up, it's seven pages. It goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. All right, let's, news flash here. Okay, is it any surprise that the people who came to Washington on on January 6th to protest the and who believed that the election was stolen I'm not one of those people don't believe the election was stolen but the people that showed up the thousands of people who showed up in Washington who had concerns about the election is it any surprise to to figure out that at least a, a portion of them you know gave to republican candidates and or the president actually my guess would have been that almost all of them did. If there's anything that I find to be surprising about this story, it's that they do this exhaustive investigation and they find that only, at least so far, 75 of the 307 people charged ha- had made donations. That's only 25%. Look, my, my feeling would have been in the, gee, this is, you know, dog bites man type of story. My guess is the, I, I would not have been surprised if it was 80 or 90% or maybe even 100%, because if you're going to travel to Washington, D.C. to participate in, in one of these protests that end up getting out of hand, as that one did, I, I would have thought that the vast majority, if not all of the people who decided to come to D.C., had contributed to either Republican candidates in general or the president in particular. If anything, that, the fact that only 25% did, to me, that's that's sort of the, the story. What about those other 75%? But here, of course, you have the headline, many accused in the Capitol tr- attack placed their campaign cash on Trump and Republicans. All right, so it's those, those evil Republicans. Well, uh, yeah, excuse me, like I say, I would expect that the people who showed up who have now been charged, yeah, it's not exactly a surprise that they supported Donald Trump and or Republicans and that they supported them with their cash. But then what you have, the reason you have this story is it's this desperate hope to try to to cling to the fact that, gosh, you know, Trump is gone. 
all right, now, you know, people are talking about, or at least they want to talk about the stuff going on on the border with Biden and, you know, North Korea and all these other issues that are out there. But, but that's not helping us sell papers. We've got to figure out a way to try to grab the, the, those people we're losing who we had over the last couple of years because they couldn't get enough of the, the Trump derangement syndrome stuff. And now we've got to figure out a way to do it. So let, let's, let's write this story where we say, hey, you, you know that the people who got arrested in that Capitol riot, 25% of them get, gave money to Trump. All right, and that's the screaming headline. Of course they gave money to Trump. What what would you expect? If, <laughs> candidly, I mean, if, if the story was like 50% of the people that came to protest Joe Biden being elected um, and the question, the legitimacy of the election, if they gave to Biden, that wouldn't make any sense at all. But, of course, that's the screaming headline, and it shows what's going to be going on at least for the next few months as the media tries desperately to try to cling to uh, some of the eyeballs they got, some of the subscriptions that they sold digitally, and some of the other attention they got by setting themselves up as being hopelessly anti-Trump, which isn't to say it's not fair to criticize Donald Trump. Lord knows he did a lot of stuff that deserves that, particularly in his behavior after the end of the election in November. But, I mean, breaking news, breathless headline story, 25% of the people arrested at the Capitol gave money to Trump. Well, I'm sorry. I mean, that doesn't strike me as being a stop the press's story. Okay, when we come back, can we blame it on the Proud Boys? I'll explain. We'll discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. A year ago, the pandemic was taking hold. Millions were laid off. The stock market plunged and investor confidence, well, it was low. As we recover, what will you do differently with your plan and your investments? Join Dave Spano from Annex Wealth Management on Wednesday, March 31st at 6 p.m. for a special webinar, Investing in a Post-COVID World with our very own Steve Scafidi. It's a free webinar. It's open to all fans who are interested in what's next in the markets and investing. To find out more, please visit the features page at WTMJ.com and sign up today. All right. So in in the last segment, I was just talking about how the, the mainstream media is seeing a huge drop in eyeballs and clicks and interest now that Donald Trump is gone because they spent the last several years playing into the Trump derangement syndrome, the people that hated Donald Trump and couldn't get enough of that. And I understand there were people on the other side as well. So I get that. But that's why you know CNN was able to succeed. It's why the New York Times was able to succeed as well as they did. It's why the Washington Post was able to increase its digital subscribers because people wanted that negative Trump coverage, and now there's a vacuum now that the Trump is gone. And what they're finding is people are are just getting back to their, their normal lives and things like that. So there is this incredible pressure to try to find the, the next Trump type story, or if we can't incorporate Trump, we, it's got to be stuff that Trump caused. And so there's an example of that in the New York Times today. Far-right extremists move from stop the steal to stop the vaccine. And the story talks about, well, here's the first paragraph. Adherents of far-right groups who cluster online have turned repeatedly to one particular website in recent weeks, the federal database showing deaths and adverse reactions nationwide among people who have received COVID-19 vaccinations. It's the so-called, if the so-called Stop the Steal movement appeared to be chasing a lost cause once President Biden was inaugurated, its supporters among extremist organizations are now 
adopting a new agenda from the anti-vaccination campaign to try to undermine the government. Bashing the safety and efficacy of vaccines is occurring in chat rooms, frequented by all manner of right-wing groups, including the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Movement, a loose affiliation known for wanting to spark a second civil war, and various paramilitary organizations. The groups tend to portray vaccines as a symbol of excessive government control, and it goes on and on and on. In other words, that you've got the, these fringe groups that are out there, and they're trying to encourage people not to get vaccines. Now, now let, let's let's stop here for a second. I'm sure that there is an element, I guess, of that that is out there. And if you are a regular listener to this program, you know I am pro-vaccine. I, I got my vaccination two days ago. And by the way, no no complications at all. Matter of fact, my arm isn't even sore. So if if you're judging it from my experience, there is I got the Pfizer vaccination. There, there's absolutely no reason, knock on wood, no reason to be scared at, at, at all of, of this. And even though I had COVID in November and probably believe that I have antibodies that gives me more immunity than maybe that they're willing, the CDC is willing to acknowledge, I still thought it was responsible to get a vaccine. And again, no consequences, no problems at all. So I believe people should get vaccinated. I believe the more people that get vaccinated, the better off it is going to be. And I do appreciate this argument of herd mentality. Now, the Dr. Fauci's of the world and the CDC's of the world say we're not going to get herd immunity until we get like 80 to 85 percent of the population vaccinated. Well, 80 to 85 percent of the people aren't going to get vaccinated. And that's just that's just not going to happen. I think we'll be lucky if at the end of the day we get 60 percent vaccinated because there's going to be all sorts of people that are just going to make the decisions that they don't want to do it. An individual choice. But now the media narrative is starting to develop saying, okay, if people are making the decision not to get vaccinated, it has to be because they're under the influence of these far right groups and they're getting this information in these chat rooms. And I just don't flat out believe it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage talking text line. Okay, like I say, I I believe that people should get vaccinated unless there's a good medical reason not to do it. But not everybody's going to do that. All right, if you are making the decision not to get a vaccination, is it because well, you know, you've been in these far-right chat rooms and you're falling under the influence of the Proud Boys, or is it because well, you've simply considered it and for whatever reasons you're not ready to do it if not today you're not ready to do it yet 855-616-1620 that's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line if people don't get vaccinated if we're only able to get to 60% say vaccinations which I, I think that's kind of how I look at it I don't believe it's going to be because of influence of these fringe groups despite what the media might tell you I believe it's going to be because people have just simply made the decision a decision which by the way I don't agree with but they made the decision they're not going to get the vaccine 855-616-1620 we discuss in a minute very smart text today Jeff the majority of people I know who say they're not getting vaccinated are African Americans I really doubt that these African-Americans I know are taking their cue from the Proud Boys or the Boogaloo movement. You know, that is that is such a good point, because if you look at where the vaccinations are, a lot of the minority communities, uh, you, you see the numbers are, are very, very down. They're, they're lower than they want to be. And, and you're right. I doubt that those 
the folks in the minority communities, the majority minority communities, I, I doubt that they're on the websites with the, the chat boys with the Boogaloo Boy movement or the Boogaloo movement saying, oh, my gosh, you know, here, we're, we're going to align with this. Um, Jeff, I'm getting my vaccine here today, but I've noticed that all those who refuse to get vaccinated without medical reason are the ones who don't want to behave in the interest of protecting their fellow citizens. I think it's selfish. Well, all right, that's fine. Jeff, my wife and I are not getting the vaccine. We made up our minds and have lived our lives as such as as much as we could during the last year without masks and social distancing, going out to eat to bars and having huge parties. We made up our minds and it won't change. Well, well, yes, that's the whole idea that, that's that's out there. I mean, it's people are making these independent decisions. Like I say, I, I got the vaccine and I'm I'm happy I did it. I having had it, I, I actually believe having had it and recovered that the, ultimately the science is going to show that once you've had it, your immunity probably lasts a lot longer than they think. That's what I believe it's going to turn out to be. But that doesn't matter. Didn't have any problem getting it. I encourage you to do it. But if I made the decision not to, it's not because I'm under the influence of some weird right wing, um, you know, chat room. Jeff, um, this is the way the world is today. People believe articles like this stuff. I'm not getting the vaccine just because I don't want to. I didn't get the flu vaccine seen either, but I would never want to look at these far left or even uh, from one of these from the far left or the far right. I think it just ends up being nonsense. Jeff, when you got your vaccine, weren't you worried about the nano chip installed in your brain? I get my second chip. I mean, vaccine next week. <laughs> That's it. Uh, Jeff, why would Trump supporters not get the vaccine he pushed to develop? I agree. They're looking in the wrong group of anti-vaxxers who are not necessarily um, new. Jeff, I'm not getting it. It's my choice. No one or no group has anything to do with that. Jeff, I'm young and healthy. There's no long-term research on the vaccine, and the vaccine doesn't get you your freedom back anyway, so why do it? Right, see... I think it's worth it doing it anyways, and that's why I encourage people to do it. But this this idea, and this is what's going to happen. If you have made the decision not to get the vaccine, you can just see this is the way it's developing in the mainstream media. You're going to be lumped in. It's all because you're under the influence of some fringe sort of, of group, and, and that's what I'm rebelling against. I encourage you to do it. I think you should do it. But I, I'm also willing to understand that there are reasons why smart people make this decision to go in the other direction direction. Jeff, my husband has no plans to get the vaccine. It has nothing to do with social media influence. He has no social media presence. He only watches the news because I do so, you know, at at 10. Um, well, that's it. Jeff, I do not listen to chat rooms on the vaccine. I don't receive any shots. I will not because I don't care to do so. Um, okay, if others want to receive the shot to prevent themselves from any potential asymptomatic tendencies that I may have, that is their prerogative. All right, see, that that's it. People end up making those choices, but because not because it's the Proud Boys or the Boogaloo movement or any of these other things, but this is the media narrative that's being peddled, at least right now. All right, lots of stuff coming up, including a special guest at the start of the 1 o'clock hour. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. A week from Tuesday, April 6th, there is a statewide election. 
And everybody in Wisconsin will have the chance to vote for state superintendent of schools. Now, I confess I haven't talked a lot about this race for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that has kind of got this race on my radar screen now is there there's two people that are running. One is the former Brown Deer School superintendent. Her name is Deb Kerr. And the other is uh, former state former school superintendent from the Pecatonica School District, which is a little school district outside of Madison. Her name is Jill Underly. And the reason I guess I've been seeing this, it seems like every time I turn on the television, I see some vicious attack ad that is being run against Deb Kerr. And these ads are being financed by uh, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin, the State Teachers Union, WEAC, and a group that calls itself Better Wisconsin Together, which is an offshoot of that, that, that sort of shady leftist group that's been just a cancer sore on Wisconsin politics for the last couple decades called One Wisconsin Now. But so far, at least as of a couple days ago, that these groups had spent $766,000 in an effort to either support Jill Utterly or, or mostly uh, oppose Deb Kerr. And I got to wondering seriously, what 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 is what is it about this Deb Kerr that has attracted hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of hostile spending? And to discuss that and other things, we are joined right now by state school superintendent candidate Deb Kerr. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff, and I'm excited to talk to your WTMJ listeners today. Okay, so what is it about you that has attracted all this spending, over three-quarters of a million dollars, talking about what a terrible person you are? What what is going on, and why why are people at least so opposed to the fact that you might get elected in a week and a half? Because this would be the first time in history that a state superintendent candidate was not endorsed by the teachers' union. And I have the most experienced and unique qualifications that really prepare me best for this job. And so I'm a threat and they know I have a pathway to victory and we're gonna prove them, we're gonna prove just that. Is is the big issue in this campaign, and I know that there's differences between you and your opponent, but, but is the big issue really your respective positions on school choice? That's one of the issues. I mean, I think uh, this is an old political battle. And so in try, instead of trying to bring people together to unify us, to ensure outcomes are improved for all kids, and don't forget, the state superintendent is in charge of all children, not just public school kids. So it's all kids. And so I'm beholden to kids and families and teachers in that order. And my opponent is beholden to teachers unions. And they're not allowing our kids to come back to school in our largest urban uh, setting. Well, let's break that down a couple. First of all, let's talk about the school choice issue. How, how, how do you feel about this? Do you think parents should have options other than sending their kids to the, the public school in their area? I trust parents. I absolutely agree that parents should always have the choice where to send their school, their children to school based upon their circumstance. So yes, I trust our parents and they have been doing just that, especially during this pandemic. I am worried that our public schools are at a crisis right now because our public school parents have made choices to send their kids to private and parochial schools because they have been face-to-face instruction. And so are we going to get those kids back? I'm not sure. Uh, we're talking to State Superintendent of Schools candidate uh, Deborah Kerr. 
Um, one of the things that I mean, I was actually talking about a little bit earlier this week is the Milwaukee School Board may, after having essentially kept the Milwaukee public schools closed since since last March, made the decision that there would be a gradual reopening. But for most high school students, that is all high school students who weren't who aren't either seniors or weren't failing a class, they're going to continue with with virtual learning. Is it time for the public schools across the state to open up? Absolutely. The science is clear. All schools can open safely. The CDC has guidelines to make that happen. And, you know, this is, there has just been such a lack of meaningful leadership between, at all levels, from the local, state, and federal level to help school superintendents, school boards, and school leaders open up their schools. So, again, schools are not spreaders of the disease. The research shows that teachers don't have to be vaccinated. And guess what? The Schools around Wisconsin, over 80% of those schools are open right now in our great state of Wisconsin, and those kids are white. The majority of our kids in urban areas are black and brown kids who are the most vulnerable and marginalized kids, and they are in virtual learning. We are creating more disparities between those students and our families, and our families are angry. They are frustrated. They want their kids to go back to school today. One of the things we know is that in some of the larger urban school districts, MPS, for example, there is there is an achievement gap between like a lot of the kids that are in MPS versus like some of the surrounding schools. My guess is that's got nothing but worse over the course of the last year, to your point, where you have some kids that have been in-person learning and others that have been trapped in virtual learning for the last year. When we come out of this, how, how do we make up that achievement gap that's there? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I am tired of Madison bureaucracy blaming Milwaukee for their achievement gap. We need to work together and build capacity in Milwaukee. And my plan uh, as the next SEG superintendent will do just that. We want to focus on literacy. We want to get back to the basics, teaching phonics and reading and math so that all kids can be successful. We've got to get Wisconsin off that list of having the worst achievement gap between black and white students in the country. And so you've got to think about who was leading the state superintendent's office during that time. And so we've got to focus on the achievement gap. We've got to get it done and put the resources in just the right places to make that happen. And so that, what that's going to look like, my recovery plan says we have to have targeted interventions for the kids who need it. We might need to look at summer learning programs that are more robust that include acceleration, remediation, and enrichment. Our kids have been traumatized because of their lack of being in a school with their teachers and with their peers. So we've got mental health issues and social-emotional learning issues to deal with. And I believe the, the road to recovery and to begin the healing process starts with opening all of our schools now face-to-face five days a week. And you're, you're convinced that that can be done safely? I am. And the, and even our Secretary of Education, our new Miguel Cardona, says it can be done. And so schools have opened up all across the country that are even larger than some of our urban districts. The teachers' unions are strong-arming our school boards and our school leaders, not allowing them to give our kids what they need. And parents should continue to speak out and voice their opinion, because this is not right. We're talking to State Superintendent of Schools candidate Deborah Kerb. I started off this by by talking about again. It seems like every time I, I turn on the television, mm-hmm. I see some some negative ad. And and the one of you were the former school superintendent in Brown Deer. And, and one yeah. of the the big subjects of the ad is that Brown Deer there there was all this money that was taken, and you cost the taxpayers all this money by not firing the guy. What what is that all about? 
Okay. First of all, that is a false ad, and this is just so irresponsible that uh, my opponent is is bringing up uh, a past history of a situation she has no knowledge about. Uh, she doesn't even have experience running a large district to understand what employment law looks like. And so it's very unfortunate uh, that they've done those attack ads. And again, it's dark money. Okay. But you know what? It was not a financial scandal, you know, and it was very painful and complicated and drawn out. And so, but my school board was with me the whole time. And you know what? I successfully led the Brown Deer School District for another 10 years past this situation. I was supported by multiple boards and multiple board members. And then I went on to lead the Wisconsin Association of School District Administrators as the state president and also the national president of our national superintendent's organization. So there, my record stands for itself. I turned around that district. We passed $54 million of referendums, and we've created a legacy for education uh, and a future for all of the children and families in Brown Deer. You know, I think that's an interesting point you make because that, that gets lost in, in the negative mm-hmm. ad, that the, the incident yep. that, that they're referring to, which was an employment issue that was dealt with, yes. and there's all sorts of rules about employment law and, and due mm-hmm. process for accused employees, but it, it, it's not like that led to your being ousted or something at Brown Deer. You, you went on for another decade to run that school district. Absolutely. The school board and competent legal counsel was involved with this situation from the very beginning. You know, the decisions that were made all along the way were in the best interest of the district and the children and and all the parents that I worked with. So we all know, for those of us who have been in supervisory roles and experience, dealing with personnel issues requires just a certain amount of privacy, and the law recognizes and encourages that privacy. But I feel very uh, uh, badly for the families now because this has been stirred up again and it's created a lot of hardship for the families involved in this situation. A lot of times people in the media kind of look at the horse race aspect of this and they sit there and they say, okay, well, as of a couple of days ago, Deb Kerr is getting outspent 13 to 1. Now, I don't know what it's ultimately going to be, but boy, cool. she's getting outspent 13 to 1. There, there, there's no way that her message gets across. An election like this has to be over. What, what do you say to that? I have been crisscrossing the state for the last four weeks. I have been over in over 30 counties in the last 14 days. I'm doing press conferences all across the state talking about my vision to create a world-class education system for all kids in Wisconsin and to reopen our schools. Today I had a press conference in Wausau um, about the need to get started right away and that we need to deal with um, some of the social-emotional issues in, going on in our schools mainly sex trafficking that's happening across some of our communities. And I have a plan, and so my opponent has no vision. She has no plans for future policies. I also want to decentralize the DPI, and I want to do that because we need to create a better customer service agency that's not regulatory and just compliance-minded. We need to make sure my leadership team at the DPI represents all of the stakeholders in Wisconsin, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Deb Kerr, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, and have a great Friday, everybody. That's uh, Deborah Kerr. She is one of the two candidates for state superintendent of schools. And and by the way, if you look at her background, she's... She, she's not a conservative. I mean, I, th- I think she's self-proclaimed that she, she voted for Joe Biden and things like that. She's just the, the big difference is that she's um, it's really centering on the whole school choice thing. And I, I did want to give her an opportunity to come on because you, you see all these ads that are being spent by these sort of 
dark money groups and oh this, she's terrible and you know you, you can decide how yourself how you want to vote on these things it's, it's very clear though that the you know teachers union and the organized left in wisconsin is trying to take her out will they succeed well i mean historically that's had a again i think she started off by saying typically the the candidate backed by the state teachers union is able to win the state superintendent of schools elections um we'll 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 see and we'll see the role that money plays but i wanted to give her an opportunity to address some of those issues back with more in just a minute this is jeff wagner welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj Hey, Brewers fans, WTMJ's Greg Matzik has received a non-roster invite to spring training. He won't be playing for the Brewers, of course, but join him for the ride um, as he gets an all-access look inside Brewers spring training. Join us all week long during your favorite WTMJ shows. It's Greg Matzik's spring training trip. It is all this week, and it is sponsored by Trex, the number one name in outdoor living. So you can check that out. Hey, there's another race that I've been getting a, a, a number of questions about. And I've made a decision that I I am not commenting on it, but I want to explain to you why I'm not commenting on it. There is a court of appeals race that that maybe you've been getting mailers on, and it's between a guy named Jeff Davis, um, who is the incumbent. Well, he was appointed by Tony Evers to the bench in the court of appeals, and he is running against a part-time municipal judge. Her name is Shelley Grogan. And I know it's attracted a, a lot of attention, and, and actually people have been saying, well, what are you going to have those candidates on? Are you going to talk about that, etc.? And my answer is no. And the reason is because I, I know one of the candidates personally, um, Jeff Davis, who spent most of his career, he, he's new to the bench, he spent most of his career at a, a big law firm in, in Milwaukee. And my late wife, she was a partner at Foley and Lardner, which is another big law firm in downtown Milwaukee, and a very, very close friends of ours, is very close friends with Jeff Davis. And just just because of that just because I know somebody, as I've always said, doesn't mean that I, I'm not going to talk about a race. But every once in a while, when you know somebody well, it's just I, I feel uncomfortable doing it. So for people who've been asking me, you know, who do you support in the Davis-Grogan race? And are you going to talk about it on the radio and you're going to have the candidates on? The the answer is n- I'm not going to talk about it. I just don't feel comfortable doing that because, again, of my prior relationship with one of the candidates in this case. So you can make your own decision up on that particular one. Let's take a quick break. Back with more in just a minute. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Well, if you've been in downtown Milwaukee recently, and given the fact that there's not that much open, I, I'm not sure how many of you had, but you, you'll see those those streetcar tracks that are that are there that take up all that space, and you you will see that the streetcar running from time to time. And if before the pandemic we talked about the, the, it being an air trolley, essentially just just driving around with air, well, now after the p- pandemic, it's really an air tro- a trolley. Here, here's the story out of the Business Journal. Um, okay, it, the, the first year. The first year, 2019, ridership, when it was free, was 760,000 people. All right. Um, the next year, 
261,000 people. So definite drop off. Now they say um, they are averaging 516 riders a day um, since the start of the pandemic, March 20th, in March of 2020. And by the way, I, I don't think that's necessarily distinct riders. Um, I, I think that might be so if you if you hop on the trolley and take it one way and then take it back, you get counted. It's still free. All right. It, it's still free. So there's no real accurate way of knowing how much money is going to be raised by this, and there's no intention to start charging. Look, I understand that places all over are struggling because of the pandemic, and you could argue that maybe there wasn't a worse time to build a downtown trolley than right in before a pandemic that has essentially decimated downtown, where a lot of the major office buildings have allowed people to work at home. People aren't coming back, at least right now, in record numbers, so it in many respects, you know, what's going on with the trolley isn't something that you could have necessarily anticipated because nobody saw the pandemic coming on. But for those of us who thought it was a bad idea in the beginning, now that you have the pandemic and you have very, very few people in downtown and you have the ridership just absolutely cratering, it looks like it's an even worse idea. People could not have foreseen the pandemic, but we could have certainly foreseen and predicted that ridership would be taking a huge plunge. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. If you follow me on Twitter, um, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I posted something today, which it's the first time I have seen in, in print a, a defense piece of of Senator Ron Johnson. We've had Senator Johnson on, and as I have said before, I think, and I, I've offered some unsolicited political advice, I think that, that he has, over the course of the last several months, become a, a lightning rod for, particularly for the left. And one of the reasons he's become a lightning rod is because if he runs for re-election in 2022, he will be one of only two senators Republican senators running for re-election in a state that uh, Joe Biden carried. So he's got a target on, on his back. Secondly, he has admittedly jumped into different controversy. It's one of the reasons why I offered this unsolicited ad- advice suggesting that, you know, next time somebody asks you, Senator, about, you know, what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, why don't you just kind of move on? Because nothing you, anything that you say, regardless of what your intent is, anything you say will be taken and it will, in fact, be, be used against you. And you know, regardless of what the message is that you're trying to convey, it, it's it's going to be viewed through the, this prism of, oh, you know, Ron Johnson has gone over the, over the bend. And I understand there's some people who, who think that. But you know, Senator Johnson has explained that he believes he's been aggressively been misquoted and things have been twisted in an effort to try to, uh, again, help his opponents raise money and things of the like. There is an interesting opinion piece uh, by Kimberly Strassel in today's Wall Street Journal. I have a link to it. If you want to follow me again, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 on Twitter. But I, I want to share just a portion of it with you because it, it's really the first time I have seen in a major opinion piece in a a, a a major newspaper, and this is the Wall Street Journal, a comment on some of the things that have been going on. Here, here's the headline. It says, yellow journalism turns blue. Ron Johnson is under attack from a press that has abandoned honesty and fairness. Yellow journalism 
means a sensationalized press. Perhaps it's time to introduce blue journalism, the new media practice of abandoning standards to work seamlessly with the progressive left against any opposition. A case study is the attempted political assassination of Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. The press has never liked most Republicans, yet for most of Mr. Johnson's decade in the Senate, it's generally described him as what he is, an outsider businessman and fiscal conservative with a focus on deficits and spending. With, quote, Wisconsin's senior senator is a numbers guy, a believer in the power of facts and figures, wrote Milwaukee Magazine in his first term. In recent years, serving on the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, he developed a reputation for oversight. Compare that with the recent onslaught. Quote, assaulting the truth, Ron Johnson helps erode confidence in government, read a New York Times news headline over a story that called him the Republican Party's foremost amplifier of conspiracy theories and disinformation. Quote, Ron Johnson's crazy train is somehow getting even weirder, snarked Vanity Fair. Ron Johnson is a racist. Opine the Wisconsin Post's, uh, the Washington Post's Kathleen Parker. Mr. Johnson is inciting fear, the Post's Michael Gerson added. The paper's fact checkers assailed his misleading data and unscientific take. What's this all about? Well, from the Times story, it amounts to this. Mr. Johnson has refused to brand everyone present in Washington on January 6th as insurrectionists. He's continued to note that last year's Black Lives Matters protests led to rioting, loosen, looting, arson, and death. He held treatments, hearings on treatments for COVID and 2020 election integrity. And he's declined for now a COVID vaccine, given he had the disease last year and decided to let others go before him. None of this is remotely conspiratorial or even controversial. Mr. Johnson's real offense is refusing to roll over to the progressive and public health police and continuing to ask tough questions. The Democrat media complex hates these questions. The Beltway Press has special grudges against Mr. Johnson since his fact-finding efforts exposed its bias and ineptitude last fall. Mr. Johnson and Senator Chuck Grassley in September issued a report on Hunter Biden's sleazy foreign business dealings. Democrats in the media tried mightily to brand it Russian disinformation, only to be roundly refuted when the younger Mr. Biden's business partner and documents later backed up the report and when news leaked that Hunter Biden was under federal investigation for the sort of transactions Mr. Johnson had brought to light. Mr. Johnson isn't doing anything differently now. The only thing that has changed is a press corps that is now brazenly using recent crises to fabricate storylines to the left's advantage. The recent anti-Johnson pieces are stunning in their willingness to twist the senator's words or take his positions out of context. No, he hasn't diminished confidence in mass vaccinations, as the Times claims. He's repeatedly praised Operation Warp Speed. Some public health experts have argued that those who have been infected should have lower vaccination priority while supplies are limited. No, he has not promoted discredited COVID-19 treatments. He held a hearing with respected physicians who worried that authorities hadn't been proactive enough in investigating common drugs that might save lives. No, he hasn't denied the violence of the mob on January 6th. He's condemned the lawbreakers repeatedly while asking tough questions about really what happened that day. And then it goes on to talk about some of the stories and how people have been misquoted or have not been quoted at all. And then it concludes with the idea of saying, "Okay, let's understand what's really going on here, that the media 
is linking itself and really going after Ron Johnson because Democrats think that he's a, a principal target. Now, look, I, I think sometimes, as I've said before, I think some of the controversy that Senator Johnson has created has been of his own making and that he would just be better off like moving on and, and not engaging. And there was one interview he gave where he said, well, I probably shouldn't say this. And my advice has been, if you're speaking and you feel compelled to utter the phrase, I probably shouldn't say this because it's going to get me in trouble or something like that, then you probably shouldn't say it because it probably will get you in trouble. That's just kind of, I, I think, a, a simple, straightforward rule of life. But but this attention, this, oh, Ron Johnson is a racist and this is all this appalling stuff. Well, if you think that, you, you think that. But there's a bigger picture that's here. And if you want at least a different perspective on that, I invite you to follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. And check out the piece today written by Kimberly Stossel in the Wall Street Journal. All right. When we come back, I want to talk about public transportation. On the one hand, we're having more pushes for it. On the other hand, fewer people are riding. What's going on? Where is the disconnect? We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The problem with mass transit, the way I see it, is that as a general rule, people would rather drive in cars. Now, I bring this up because about a, uh, I think it may, either earlier this week or last week, we were talking about the plans to, to widen the freeway, you know, the stretch of I-94 between the Marquette Interchange and um, out to the Zoo Interchange. And one of the arguments against that is, no, because, well, you know, more and more people as we move forward are going to turn to mass transit. They're not going to want to be in cars. The demand is going to go down. And one of the things that I said is I, I just, I don't think that reflects reality because while there are people that, for example, you know, take the bus and t- take the bus or maybe even ride the trolley, although not that many of them anymore, most people, including you know, people from low income areas, one of the first things folks do when they get a job, for example, and they can afford it is they buy a car because they want the freedom and the flexibility the car gives you. They don't want to be tied into a particular bus schedule. Now, I'm not against, you know, buses and things of the like. I I understand that they have a role, but I I was thinking of that conversation we had because a couple people challenged me on that. What what, what do you mean? There's all sorts of people who, they don't want cars, they don't need cars. There's a piece in the New York Times of all places yesterday uh, talking about how riders are abandoning buses and, and trains. And how, you know, we, we talk a lot about climate change and one of the ways you deal with climate change in urban areas and in as far as like lowering greenhouse emissions is is reducing dependence on cars and having more people, I guess, ride on buses or, you know, take trains, less so trains in a place like Milwaukee, but like using the buses and all. And one of the things they're seeing is that people aren't using mass transit as much. Now, part of this is, of course, due to the pandemic, that you don't have people traveling as much to begin with. You have more people working remotely. But it's really looking at, you know, long-term picture. What they're finding is that more and more people are, are choosing to pass up mass transit in favor of other ways to get to work. All right. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm not against a, a vibrant bus system. And I think you, you have to offer that to people because there's always going to be you know, situations where people who, who can't afford the cars 
or not so much in Milwaukee, but in other urban areas, that having a car is just too much of a hassle. I mean, try driving a car in downtown New York City or downtown Chicago. It's just too much of a hassle. But in an area, an urban area, say like Milwaukee, where it is relatively easy to get around um, with an automobile, where parking is not an absolute and total nightmare. Now, I'm not saying there's not a cost to it and things like that, but where driving is still relatively easy. If people can afford the cars, they will always choose to take the cars, or almost always choose to take the cars over buses or things of of the like. And that's one of the problems in trying to sell any sort of mass transit system in an area where cars provide a viable alternative. Like I said, I concede, like New York City, cars really, really aren't an alternative because the, the congestion is so intense, there's no place to park a car in downtown Manhattan and all that. But in a place like Milwaukee, where it is easy to drive around, my premise has always been that there, there's going to be a certain segment of the population that can't afford to drive the cars, or maybe it's a situation where you got one car for two, for, for a, you know, a husband and a wife, and one of the spouses takes the car to go to work, and the other person has to take the bus. So there's always going to be a need for that. And like I say, there's always going to be people who don't own vehicles. But one of the things that I have found is that for people, regardless of what your income level is, once you reach a certain point, you, the, the first thing you do is you want to buy a car. How many people do you know that that's, that was it? That as soon as they got a job and as soon as they, whether it was as a teenager or as a young adult, as soon as they got a job and started saving money, what's the first thing that they want to buy? Well, the first thing they want to buy is a car. And why is that? Because they want that flexibility. They don't want to be tethered to the idea that, gee, I, I have to, I have to be at the bus stop at, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning or 7.30 in the morning. And if I miss it, I'm going to be late to work. I don't want to be not able to go out for a beer with my coworkers after work because the, the last bus leaves at 6.15. And if I do that and I'm not there by 16, 6.15, I'm, I'm out of luck. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, this isn't an anti-mass transit screed, but it's also this reality that, at least in my opinion, that when you have the opportunity to get a car, that that's what you're going to do. And especially in an area like Milwaukee, that is always going to put limits on on the desirability of mass transit. Am I wrong? 855-616-1620. And I mean, think about your own life. I mean, as soon as you could get a car, you know, whether it was the financial wherewithal or whatever, isn't that what you did? We discuss in just a moment. And this is Jeff Wagner. Hey, Jeff, I've lived in the D.C. area for about nine years now. I've really watched the metro system decline in this time. Lots of delays, station issues, broken elevators, flooding, etc., timing and increasing safety and sanitary issues. Ridership was way down even before the pandemic. Although it's not as easy to get around in downtown D.C. with a car, many locals are opting for other options, including ride shares, etc., and other parking options. This seems to have been a huge lifestyle um, shift. I, I think, you know, that's I think that there is that element there. Um, again, I'm, I'm not this isn't an anti-mass transit thing, but as they're looking at it stuff globally, they're finding that fewer and fewer people are choosing to ride mass transit independent of, of the pandemic. And my belief is that especially if, if all things being equal, People will opt for cars. Now, there might be certain exceptions and things like that, but if you can afford a car, you're always going to want to go the car route. Dennis in Milwaukee. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Jeff. 
Um, Jeff, I'm a semi-regular rider of the bus and uh, trolley, and there's no question that the volume of riders is down for much the same reason as that the number of cars on the expressway are down if it's the pandemic. And it's going to take a while for mass transit to come back up because uh, people are sitting close closer together, and obviously in the pandemic that's a no-no, and it's going to take time for people to, to go back there. Um, that being said, I, I'm a car owner, but I still ride the bus from time to time because it's more relaxing. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier. I can read on the bus. Plus, I don't have to contend with the reckless driving in, in some areas of Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, surveys have shown that the younger generation, the millennials, tend to be more fans of or greater fans of mass transit than others. So I, I'm not sure if the future is as bleak as um, as uh, some may think. Well, that's, that's an interesting thanks call. That, that's an interesting point. And again, I'm not arguing that you should, you should do away with buses. I mean, because there's always going to be there's going to be people who don't have automobiles. There's no question about that. And then there's going to be people just like you who say that they, they make the choice. I mean, when I used to have to go to Chicago. I, you're driving to Chicago to me is like, you know, having a root canal without Novocaine. I, I would take the train, you know, and it dropped it with the, you know, I used to have to go down and argue cases in front of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. The, the train drops you off about five blocks away from where the courthouse was. It was the perfect way to get down there. If you had to drive, you'd have to fight all the traffic. You'd have to struggle with parking. So there, there's definitely going to be a, a role for mass transit. I get it. But one of the big problems I do think moving forward is this idea that people have that everybody want to, every Everybody wants to ride the bus. Well, no, I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, most people, you know, want to drive in cars. Now, you make an interesting point about the millennials, particularly the people who live in who just make the decision that they're going to live downtown and they're going to kind of confine their life. And I don't say this in a bad way, but confine their life to like a, a one square mile radius where you can always walk to things or, hey, I'm three blocks away. I, I'll hop on the, the trolley and I'll go a couple blocks and, and do that. I just don't know how viable that is long term. And that's one of the big battles when it comes to climate change. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. A lot of ground to cover in my last hour of the week. Okay, Melissa, are there times when you occasionally like to get dressed up to go out? Do you ever? I, I mean, do, yeah. Okay. I would say yes to that. So they're, they're right. I mean, look, I, I know you're a casual gal, and there's lots of times, like, gee, mm-hmm. I just, I, I want to go, and, like, I'm a blue jean kind of, I yeah, like yeah, that yeah. stuff. But there there are occasions where you say, look, I, I really want to go out for a nice meal, and I want to put on some jewelry or whatever. Yeah, nice it, dress, makeup, like, hair, right. yeah. I, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's, the, and, and you... And you like to go to a restaurant, and I assume if you're going to dress up, you also there, there's a certain kind of expectation that when you go to the place, you're not gonna if you're dressed up, you're not gonna necessarily be sitting next to the guy with the Guns and Roses T-shirt with the holes and stuff <laughs> like that, right? Yeah, probably not. No. Okay, no, fair enough. Mm-hmm. No, I because I I agree with you in, entirely, and I mean, look, I I appreciate casual a lot, and most of the places I go are casual, but there every once in a while it's one of those things where okay, th- this is this is a nice, it's an upscale thing, and I'm going to put on a suit and and I'm going to put on a tie or whatever. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned that. It's funny that you say that because that's one of the things I've really missed during the pandemic is 
right. dressing up and going right. out for the evening. But right. yeah, yes, mm-hmm. see, right, and, and not not always, but I mean, because look, I, I I like the casual stuff, and uh, but but every once in a while, hey, I think it's kind of nice to get dressed up and to go to a to go to a nice place. All right, which brings me to the story I want to start with. This is out of Detroit. There is an upscale restaurant in Detroit. It's called the Caucus Club Detroit. And they go onto their Facebook page and they said, look, here, here, here is the deal. Um, you know, we, we are an upscale dining place. And they say, if you, if you smell like marijuana, don't even think of stepping inside. Um, he said, look, the, he said, our, and the, this is the owner. The owner says, look, our restaurant is a fine dining establishment where people dress up. He said, we've had people celebrating their 50th anniversary last week, the week before that. They're getting dressed up. They're putting on an evening gown, their earrings, their best suit. They're coming out to celebrate, and they expect to be surrounded by like-minded guests. This is the owner. He said he's gotten complaints recently from other guy, diners who either dress down or who reek of pot. He says, it's so pungent, some of our guests have commented, it smells like you're seated next to a dead skunk. Now, some people say they should be able to dress comfortly, comfortably if they're spending their money at a business, while others said uh, that it's just, just to dress up. One person called the Post racist. Okay, you're, you're racist by saying if you come in reeking of marijuana, we're not going to serve you. And the owner says, look, I have to tell you, I'm really offended by this both personally and as a citizen. For starters, to try and insinuate that any group of people is incapable of following a dress code, to me, I think is a racist statement. If you, uh, and then, you know, they, you know, they, they go on and they just defends himself about that, but people are playing the race card. But the bottom line is the guy says, look, I'm not going to apologize. I am not going to apologize for this. Our rule is proper, pop, proper attire is required. Business casual is the minimum dress code that should be adhered to while dining at the caucus club. Please be mindful that strong odors are unacceptable. Thank you. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I say hooray for this. I think this business owner, this restaurant owner, has every right to put in certain standards. And just like you have every right to decide, hey, all right, I, I, I don't want to dress up. Or, you know what, I, I, I want to pound back a couple reefers and, you know, um, I, I just, that, that's fine, you have every right to do it. But then, you know, maybe you should be at McDonald's, you know, uh, chomping down on a couple Big Macs. I think these owners have the right to impose dress codes. And I think if you want to extend that to, again, people that come in reeking of pot, that is perfectly reasonable. I've told the story a couple of years ago. We were on one of our river cruises, and we were in Amsterdam. And I love Amsterdam. I do, I do. But you walk through the streets of Amsterdam, and it reminds me, gosh, of a Grateful Dead concert circa 1976. You, you walk down some of these, these streets, and there are all these like narrow alleys and stuff. You walk down these streets, and it's just the overwhelming, pungent smell of pot to the point that it's almost like, gosh, I, I don't need to even go buy any of this stuff. I'm just going to get a contact high by walking out on the streets. So, I mean, right, if you're running an upscale, high-end restaurant, I don't think it's racist. I don't think it's inappropriate, and I certainly think it is within the business owner's discretion to say, look, you know, we're going to have a dress code, and that dress code includes don't come in here reeking of pot because we're not going to serve you. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't think there's anything wrong with certain expectations, and there might be, if I was a patron of this place, if I like the food, there might be nights where I say, you know, 
I just, you know, I, I'd love to have a steak at this place, but I just don't feel like putting on a suit. I just don't feel like getting dressed up and going down there, so let's go somewhere else because you know what the expectation is. And, and that that's all well and good. But there might be other nights where I say, you know, hon, wouldn't it be nice? Let's, let's you know, let's put on the Ritz a little bit. Let's get dressed up and let's go out and let's have a really nice meal. And if that's the type of atmosphere that that restaurant owner wants to cultivate, I say more power to him. 855-616-1620. Is there anything wrong with saying, hey, we've got a minimum dress code, we're going to enforce it, and that includes if you come in reeking a pot, we're not going to seat you. We discuss in just a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I agree with the Detroit business owner. It's a private business making his own rules. It's not discriminatory. If you don't like it, find another restaurant. Jeff, my best friend forever was sent away from a golf course because he didn't have on a collared shirt. Course rule, he went home to change. Yeah, there, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of private clubs, for example, golf clubs and stuff that have very, very Yeah, that that they have rules with regard to, hey, if you're going to be in the dining room, you need to have, after 6 o'clock, you need to have a jacket on. Or, you know, if you're going to be on the golf course, you need a collared shirt, uh, no jeans, no things like that. And you can disagree with those rules. You can say, well, that's stupid. I don't want to do that. Well, then then just don't go. Then find someplace else. There's all sorts of other places that will be delighted to have you come in and sit down and have a meal wearing, you know, a T-shirt and blue jeans. But I think the businesses have the right to do it. And similarly, if they're having a problem, Problem with people who come in and reek of marijuana to the point that the entire dining room reeks of marijuana. All right, makes perfect sense to me that you would, you know, do that. And again, you, you don't have to go there, Jeff. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a dress code at a business. And um, you know, yes, um, for the people that go around reeking of marijuana and thinking it's cool that everybody can notice if they smoke weed, um, I'm glad that part of the dress code and there are standards for that establishment. Um, yeah, Jeff, it's his business. If that's how he wants to run it and the image he wants, it's his right. As long as it isn't illegal, why shouldn't he? And I don't see how anybody could this racist. Um, yeah, I think that that's the whole situation. Jeff, you're right on. The owner of a restaurant or any other business should have the right to deny patron service. Let me stop there. As long as you're doing this a- across a- across the board, as long as you're saying, okay, you know, we, we want you to wear collared shirts, or we have a rule against blue jeans, or no tennis shoes, or, or whatever. As long as you enforce that evenly across the board, I don't have a problem with it at all. Dennis on the south side. Dennis, good afternoon. Uh, Dennis, sorry, i got to let you go there. That beep was driving me crazy. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, let's see. Absolutely, it's their right to have these guidelines. And I'm sick and tired of everything be con- being considered racist now. Yeah, that's the weird thing about it. I mean, they're, they're, they're not saying, hey, if you're of a certain, you know, ethnic group or a certain race and you come in smoke re- reeking of marijuana, we're not going to seat you. They're saying if you come in reeking of marijuana, period, we're not going to be seating you. Jeff, if anybody doesn't like the guidelines, stay home. And I'm sure that there are people who do choose to to stay home. There, there's no question about it. Like I say, there's there's a couple places that I know of that, you know, have absolutely outstanding food and there 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 are certain 
There are certain dress codes. If you're going to this place or that place, you've you got to wear a jacket or you've got to wear a tie or you can't wear blue jeans. Uh, there, there's just various rules. And there are times when I just say, hey, I don't I don't want to follow those particular rules. I don't I just it's been a long week and I, I don't feel like getting dressed up to go out. So I'm going to pass on on that. So th- there's all those opportunities. And then these businesses, if they have those rules, they, they end up losing the business. OK, I, I get it. They end up losing the business. But, um, you know, too bad. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, how many banks do we really need? I, I just there, there's a story in the Journal Sentinel by Tom Bacon about how uh, Tom Bacon about how you have all these banks and credit unions that are are just building, and it. it it kind of reinforces something that I, I just had a sense of. In I used to live in Whitefish Bay, right? And there was a, a little gas station on the corner of Silver Spring and Lydell that I always used to go to. And it was just, you know, it was just convenient to how I would get to work and things like that. And I would say about a year ago, the, the gas station, they, they leveled the building, and then there was all the construction work around it. I was wondering, what are they going to put up in there? And pretty soon I noticed it was a bank. It was a Chase Bank, which is right next door to the BMO Harris Bank that is there, which is right across the street from another bank and two blocks down from another BMO Harris Bank. And then there's a PNC Bank that's across the street from that. I mean, it's like like how many banks do you possibly need? And so, okay, one fewer gas, and you can make the argument one fewer convenience store, but at least I, I used to stop and I used to buy gas at the convenience store. All right, so... What where I live now, right down the road from me, there was a small engine repair store. They did like snow blowers and they sold lawnmowers and things like that. And and I noticed one day that 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 store was gone, along with another convenience store that was next to it, the gas station and stuff. And again, you had the construction site that was up there. And I was talking to my f- friend of mine the other day, and I said, I'm just kind of curious, what's the, you know, do you know what's going in there? He said, Yeah. I said, It's it's another bank. They said, another bank? He said, yeah, it's another bank. They went to the guy. He knew the guy that ran the small engine repair store or whatever. He said, yeah, they went to him and the bank. They made him just such a great offer that he couldn't say no. So they're taking it down and they're going to put a bank there. And I said, well, okay, in in a one-mile stretch, and I started counting off, okay, there's, let's see, there's the bank north of the movie theaters, and then you go a block and a half down, and then there's the bank with the name that I don't know, and then you're going to put this bank in, and then you go to the corner, and there's the PNC bank, and then you go across the street, and there's the BMO Harris bank, and then you go down, and there's the other credit union, and then you go another, like, three blocks down, and there's the associated bank, and I'm sitting there, and I'm counting in the space of, again, less than a mile, you've probably got at least eight or nine banks and credit unions. I mean, more than you could, I mean, just, you know, more more than you could possibly name and more than you could possibly use. And I guess what really struck me as odd about this is that who goes to banks anymore? I, I mean, really, who goes into banks anymore? I can't, I, I'm trying to think, I would guess that in the last year, and let's let's go back two years because the last year has been kind of odd because of pandemic and and of course you know some of the banks that have been closed but uh, have had their their uh, waiting rooms closed but I don't know m- maybe ten times 
you know, maybe, um, you know, once or twice in connection with actually, you know, opening an account. I mean, I remember once going into a bank because I needed to arrange a, a wire transfer and I needed to specifically meet with somebody. But as a general rule, my banking transactions are, are conducted electronically. I mean, if I, I, you know, that the money gets direct deposited into the account or Alternatively, um, you, you you know, even if you're you're using the drive-through, you can also use the ATM machines and things like that. It's just other than a handful of limited sort of transactions, you know, who goes into banks? And I guess I'm just wondering what the physical presence is going to be. I think these banks start thinking, well, you know, if if we don't have this brick and mortar store every few blocks. That means and that, that people aren't going to consider using us. If you're driving down a block and you, you see a PNC and you see an, a, BM, a BMO and you see an associated bank and you see a landmark credit union and you see all these other ones and you don't see our bank, well, that means that you won't consider using us, to which I'm, I, I just I, I don't know that that's the way that people operate anymore. And the story in the Journal Sentinel kind of makes that point, even though people are using websites and smartphone apps to pay bills, deposit checks, transfer cash, you know, banks and credit unions, particularly in our area, and especially on the North Shore, they're they're just going nuts with construction of different bank and different banking options that are out there, which makes me wonder who the customers and, and who they, they think they're going to be, and is there really that much demand? I mean, look, I appreciate that we want convenience, but do you really need three Wagner banks in the space of, you know, a, a mile and a half. Melissa, have you noticed that, that it seems every time you're driving around, there, there's new bank construction that's going up there. It's always new banks. I hadn't noticed. Well, just take a drive mm-hmm. to, take a drive through Shorewood, you know, or take mm-hmm. a drive through Whitefish Bay, and you're going to see, all, it's, I swear, it seems like almost all the new construction that's out there is, is banks, to which you kind of raise the question about how, how many banks do we really need, because who goes into banks anymore? Yeah, who goes yeah, in the bank? Well. I mean, that's it. Um, Jeff, I wonder the same thing. Silver Spring and Whitefish Bay now has 10 banks in the span of a few blocks. I have an account at BMO, but I've hardly set foot in there in the past year. Uh, Jeff, a bank's customer service over the phone is terrible across the board. The best way to get help is to go into the local branch and talk with them face to face. And I, I appreciate that. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing the value of having a, a a brick and mortar store, but I'm wondering how many people really use that on a regular sort of basis. Um, Jeff, I just started a trust. I need to visit banks to handle my financial future. Well, okay, but that's once you get that trust established, you're going to be, you know, you're, once you get that trust established, once you get it all set up, just like once you've got that wire transfer set in place, you're not going to, you know, be doing that that often. Um, There's no question about it. Uh, Jeff, it's not just banks. It seems like the only thing they're building now are banks and medical clinics. Well, that's the thing as well. Every time you turn around, it's a new medical facility that's going up. I guess all I would say to that is that, you know, okay, there might be an occasion where I'm going to want the walk-in clinic or something like that. I don't need 10 banks in a four-block area, but yet that is what the future is. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds. Please stick around.